3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Uh, So sorry, we're having some technical difficulties this morning. Um, But no drama. We're here. Yep. We're on air. (laughs) Um, And you're joined by me, Genevieve, uh, Evie, Fong, Carnegie, which are in the other studio. Hello. 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 Um, it is 7.04 a.m., sorry, a bit of a later start this morning, and it's the 7th of December. How is everyone? Pretty good. We're closing in on the end of the year, so, you know, things are getting a bit hectic, but i am just got my eyes focused on the holiday break that's approaching. Yes. <laughs> I think everyone is ready. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely ready for that one. Beach holiday, just yeah. anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, this rain. My house <laughs> My house did not cope oh, with no. the rain, unfortunately. It was so um, crazy last week, those storms. Like it, it I was joking with someone that it was like very Brisbane like. Yes. <laughs> it's very monsoonal, yeah. it feels. Um You can see it rolling in. Yeah, no, part of my ceiling is just like sunken. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like a huge, like water damage. Like there was this huge drip just in the middle of my ceiling, and we had builders come around to check it out, and they were pretty much just like, "The house is just too old." Love <laughs> to rent. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, so much fun. Um, okay, big show as always today. We've got quite a lot coming up. Oh, also, sorry, we have a guest. Yes, we do have a guest in the studio. A special guest by the, <laughs> by the name of Bun Me, who is a fluffy bunny. He's a cashmere lop, and he's he's um, joining us this morning as a an additional host um, and moral support. Yeah, through we, the technical difficulties, <laughs> we're gonna have to cut to his opinions at some point. Yeah, he has a few. <laughs> so adorable. We'll have to get a photo of pop it up on our um, social media so everyone can see. Absolutely. Um, okay, up first, Fong, you've got an exciting yeah. Uh, interview. Yeah, so I'll be speaking with Emma, who um, is an activist and also a um, primary school educator. And I really wanted to talk to her about how she has conversations with young people about things like climate change because um, these topics can be quite overwhelming and scary um, and it might be a bit challenging to navigate such um, discussions with young people Um, and yeah so I just wanted to get her um, perspective and her experience because we spoke with Ella Simons um, who's a high school student not that long ago so I just wanted to get um, maybe a more like primary school perspective so that's uh, coming up first Um, and then afterwards we're going to listen back to Ella McDonald, uh, who was uh, who broadcast uh, as part of the Disability Day um, special here at Three CR, so we're going to listen to um, one of their um, speeches. Awesome. And then I've got um, an interview coming up after that with Professor Federica Casa, who's an academic researcher and university educator in international relations. And it's about a study that came out recently kind of uh, talking about where 
uh, representation is happening in the workforce, specifically in politics and uh, diplomacy and um, de- uh, defence and security. And they found that in Australia, there is a lack of gender representation still in uh, the military or the Australian military defence and security position. So we're going to have a little bit of a chat about why that might be happening and potential uh, things that we can do to make that a bit more uh, equal. And then I'll be speaking to Professor Maria O'Sullivan, who is an associate professor in the Faculty of Law and Deputy Director of the Kasten Center for Human Rights Law at Monash University, who will be speaking about the Jenkins Report, which the new one just came out a couple days ago, and specifically uh, workplace sexual harassment and the necessity of banning non-disclosure agreements. Uh, that sounds so it's super interesting. Um, and then to finish off the show today, we're going to be listening to another instalment uh, from the interviews that I had with some students from Collingwood College. So that's coming up at around 8.20 this morning. Easy. So I reckon we'll go to a couple of quick announcements and we'll be right back with the news shortly. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. You're back on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to jump into some news headlines now. Do you want to take us away, Carnegie? Oh, I think I might start, actually. (laughs) No, that's all right. So um, today, uh, public school teachers and principals in New South Wales will strike for 24 hours over the government's failure to address unsustainable workloads and uncompetitive salaries, which are contributing to growing shortages of teachers. This is a quote from the New South Wales Teachers Federation. Council determines following statewide delegates' meetings at which the government's insistence on the maintenance of the contemptuous 2.5% wages cap and refusal to budge on crippling workloads was roundly condemned and rejected. There is no other option but to escalate our campaign to achieve the pay and conditions teachers and principals deserve and the profession and the students need. So last year, a report from the Education Department warned the government that New South Wales public schools would run out of teachers in the next five years. Uh, In this year's government employee survey, only 35% of public school teachers said they had time to do their job well, and 38% said they were paid fairly for the work that they do. So um, sending solidarity across the border to, to New South Wales today. 
One other thing that I just wanted to mention was um, that yesterday the first issue of the Sunday paper was released, so that was Monday the 6th of December. There is uh, a lot of great stuff in the first edition. We've got writing from Amy McGuire, Chelsea Wadigo, Lana Yuck, um, Sarah Saleh, Janine Harani, Tazan Samak, um, Rehab Charita and Rose Nakad, as well as some images and readings from other Palestinian First Nations um, and allies as well. Uh, Matt Chan and Janine Kalik were on Thursday Breakfast last week to talk about this new publication um, and the importance of solidarity between First Nations and Palestinian communities. So definitely check out that interview um, if you go to the Thursday Breakfast website. I can't wait to read it. We've had so many um, of the writers on 3CR, both in Breakfast as well as many of our other shows. So it's really huge to be able to, you know, have this kind of publication in Australia, especially with the kind of media blackout we've had over coverage of Palestine and, you know, just and also just any sort of First Nations or, um, you know, anti-colonial um, perspectives and news. So, yeah, please purchase it and support them. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, in global news, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and former president of Myanmar, Uwin Mint, have been sentenced to four years in prison. Aung San Suu Kyi was found guilty of incitement and of violating COVID-19 rules. She is denying all charges. Um, the ruling on Monday is a first in a dozen cases that the military has brought against her since it deposed her civilian government in a coup on the 1st of February. And the trial that's been ongoing has been closed to the media and the military has barred her lawyers from communicating with the media and the public. Um, so internationally, um, you know, neighboring countries like China, um, countries like the UK, um, organizations like the UN and Amnesty International are all saying that it's a massive attack on Myanmar's democracy. And Amnesty International has said that the international community must step up to protect civilians and hold perpetrators of grave violence to account and ensure humanitarian and health assistance is granted as a matter of utmost urgency. Um, so we'll yeah keep updating our listeners on that situation in Myanmar. Um, in other international news, I wanted to kind of talk about something we touch on often on the show, which is police brutality and sweeping powers that the police and the military are often granted. Um, so yesterday it was reported that India has held funeral rites for 15 civilians killed by its security forces in one of the northeastern states called Nagaland. Um, Nagaland is considered tribal territory in India. And um, as our listeners might know, Kashmir, which is in the north of India, is a very contested area between India and Pakistan, a lot of warfare, a lot of um, ongoing conflict over the years where India uh, continues to deploy police and military who are given absolute power often. Um, so security and government officials say 14 members of the region's predominant Konyak tribe and one security trooper were killed on Saturday after forces in the border attack quote-unquote mistook a group of laborers for armed fighters and just opened fire. Um, so understandably there is a lot of anger over the incident in Nagaland where 
People have frequently accused security forces of wrongly targeting innocent locals in counterinsurgency operations against rebel groups, and they're trying to um, repeal a law that um, applies in Nagaland. Um, the law says that uh, so basically, Nagaland is covered by this law, as India says that rebel groups operate from the thick jungles outside of an unfenced region that also spans neighboring states of Manipur and Arunachal Pradesh and borders Myanmar. And yeah, the state's chief minister is calling this law draconian and urged its removal. Um, and human rights groups are calling for an immediate arrest of all the accused security personnel behind the killings. So. Yeah, I, I was reading that the Indian Army expressed deep regret over the intelligence lapse, but that doesn't, that, you know, when this keeps happening, it hardly seems like any sort of, you know, a serious statement of regret. Um, state, um, like the residents of the state have all demanded a shutdown of the operations, of course. Um, Indian Home Minister Amit Shah is set to make a statement in Parliament on Monday about the security um, and the presence in Nagaland. Um, But, yeah, we'll be watching the space. Easy. Um, We might jump into just a really quick uh, little announcement until we get underway with this uh, interview with Emma. We'll be right back after this. Calling all filmmakers, the 9th Annual Setting Sun Film Festival wants your film. Enter a short or a feature-length film for the chance to see your work up on the gorgeous Sun Theatre screen in Yarraville. The Sun Theatre was voted one of the most beautiful theatres in the world. With up to $10,000 in prizes for winners, entries close on the 31st of January 2022. Go to settingsun.com.au and enter your film now. The Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Hello, welcome back to 3CR um, Tuesday Breakfast. We are now joined by Emma, who is a primary school teacher in the Inner North. And I wanted to speak to her today about um, her activism, but also how she discusses really important and complex issues with um, young primary school children. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Emma. Morning. Thank you so much for getting up early to speak with us. Um, I was wondering if you could start by introducing yourself a little bit more. Sure. Um, so I I guess I um, originally actually studied law coming out of school in Melbourne and um, always kind of thought that I would try and um, be involved in some form of change Um but, yeah, I think I found um, the kind of options in the legal system just to be very indirect um, in terms of, I don't know, there's all this <laughs> all this office and procedure before you're actually getting to working with people or feeling like there's tangible um, relationships or the kind of social change that I was um, believed in. Anyway, I guess... Yeah, I I became a teacher um, a few years ago and I've been teaching um, at the same school with mostly younger years and now I teach year three, four, um, alongside doing still some kind of activist projects like um, a bit of involvement with 
community groups and when I can, when I have the time, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, we were. I was reading out the news lines just uh, news headlines just before and, and talking about how little time teachers have. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, kudos to you, Emma, for for still finding time to to work with the community. Um, a few weeks ago, we spoke with Ella Simons, who's a fifteen year old school climate strike organizer, and that got me thinking about you know young people and how they're thinking about climate change and talking about it. What are um, have you observed any of these conversations happening between uh, younger children at school? Um, you know, I guess for something that, yeah, it's interesting seeing the climate strike thing sort of in my own mind being so aware of um, living in a climate-changing world. Um, I... It, I have, um, it's not that prevalent that I've seen in the younger years. I guess um, it probably depends on how much, you know, at that age, um, yeah, where where they're getting their news from, what the parent involvement is, sort of, it, the word is there. Um, and then some, someone had an older sister who'd been to the climate strike and, I think I think it really depends on the setting around the young people, um, and I think particular well particularly at the younger ages where I am, um, yeah they're just starting to find that independent media as well. Um, but I mean, it's like for me thinking about it, their sort of change is <laughs> very real for them, and yeah. I think. Um, you know, the, these last couple of years in terms of, yeah, things that they thought or are made out to be quite immutable, like going to school or the kind of um, parts of our life that I certainly used to think were just a given are all, um, yeah, less... Hello. ...things that interact. Yeah. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, sorry, Emma, you were dropping out just a little bit oh, there, but we can hear okay. you now, yeah. Okay, yeah, so I think um, things, things think about how different things are interacting. Um, and, I mean, certainly with students who are a little older, that um, probably, you know, probably around year five, six or so, where perhaps have been the ones who have been more independently going along to climate strikes and yeah. things. I think younger, it's often kind of with... Well, they sort of need some form of supervision generally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think this kid, like the, I'm already seeing through this remote period, um, yeah, so much access to, um, like YouTube and the internet, and it's a big wide world, and we're talking about all sorts of things. Um, yeah, I mean, Black Lives Matter, and so I guess it's just there's a lot of. Um, interwoven kind of social issues that kids are becoming aware of and I think you know for them they're grappling with all the diff all the various things that are influencing on their lives and climate change is obviously there amongst it all. Yeah yeah it's interesting that you cite um, I guess social media as a way of bringing issues social issues um, to or like making younger people more aware of these social issues. Um, and it's not just like one particular issue, but, you know, there are people making 
TikTok videos about a range of different things that are happening right now in the world. Um, mm. How would you go about, I guess, um, navigating some of these with young people to ensure that um, they're still maybe being a little bit critical or being able to think critically about some of the information that they consume? Um, is that something that you have to think about or um yeah, practice in, in, in your work as a teacher? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you feel that um, the teacher training you did or even <laughs> the teachers you're working with, it's like we all, we're all trying to catch up and work it out. And um, But also often I wish there was more time devoted to us thinking, how do we do this? Because mm. um, in some forms it's still the idea that all you teach the children is, like the information they get or <laughs> yeah but there's just um so i think yeah i think um in a way it's it's you know we ha- have already had these really interesting discussions around like you'll teach them something as simple as you know persuasive writing and the traditional ideas you sort of just you know you, you distinguish between the facts and the opinions and <laughs> i feel like it's even if you think about how things are previously taught, it's there's complexity there that needs to be addressed mm. um, and sources of information and news, and particularly around yeah climate and COVID. And it's just, I mean, COVID especially they they bring in their little it's a microcosm of the world. So all that um, all that information is they're trying to decipher it as well. So I mean, I feel like it's a really <clears throat> important area for like educators and parents in the community to talk about um we try um i think for me like in my classroom i guess i feel that topics aren't banned um and we need to be able to talk about things or someone saw a strange video yeah or something they're not sure about or trying to work it out um yeah i'll I guess I, I think that it's important to be, allow that to be voiced and to kind of sometimes just ask questions like, oh, what would you think or how could you try and work out whether that was a genuine source or not or is that safe or not? And I guess, yeah, sort of setting that climate of trying to build them to be uh, critical in how they're taking in media. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's um, like what you were saying about being able to provide them with a safe space to um, explore some of the things that they've found on their own or something that they've seen and and be able to ask questions so that you can facilitate um, the discussion in a safe way uh, is super important. And I think, yeah, if, if, if topics are banned or if questions are dismissed, then students will find their own way of, of trying to find out the information anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we probably have time for just one more question. I wanted to ask you, you know, for people who are working full time or, or, or have a lot of commitments, but they still want to get involved in some way, whether that's, you know, through community work or activism, because um, I know that there are a lot of people out there who maybe want to do things, but don't have the time. Is there anything that you um, would suggest? Um, as educators or just in climate? I think just people in general, but yeah, yeah if there's something that's, um, yeah, like specific to educators. Yeah, I mean, um, 
we have a like Melbourne Educators Social Justice Group um, message, Melbourne Educators for Social Environmental Justice, um, which you can find on Facebook. It's we've mostly been focused on union politics, but we're just um, planning a bit of a revamp to yeah, just look broadly at our strategies and have um, think have some really interesting forums and things next year on exactly like these kinds of questions, how how to teach in climate changing times. Um, and yeah, there's also like teachers for climate, um, teachers for the climate strikers. Um, and then, yeah, of course, as young people, I think hopefully uh, the climate strike kind of movement will um, be able to grow next year. Um, as yeah, as whatever form of uh, um, opened up or closed down we're in, I think. Yeah, I think alliances between educators and young people is a really interesting and important space. Um, when, you know, obviously, um, yeah, one that we have to allow a range of views and things. And I think, I think there can be support provided there, but also um, educators are, need to stick in their roles. Uh, yeah. And having that open space for ideas in the classroom. Um, but yeah, there's a whole, I reckon there'll be a whole bunch of budding groups and things, but those ones are ones to check out. Yeah, that's a great idea. Thank you um, so much. And maybe we can pop some of those links in our show notes later on. Um, well, thank you so much, Emma, for joining us this morning. I think it's been really interesting to hear the perspective from an educator when it comes to um, helping students navigate complex issues um, in a world where information is just sort of coming at them (laughs) from all different angles um but yeah thank you so much for joining us again this morning and um yeah i hope we'll get to speak with you again soon that would be great um so that was emma who is a primary school teacher in um um, speaking to us about uh her path into activism and then into teaching and um yeah how to speak with young people or how to help them um think critically about some of the information that they're getting from everywhere in the internet. Um, You're listening to 3CR. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably 
to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is 7.30 and we're now going to play a segment from the recently broadcast uh, Disability Day 2021 special here on 3CR. Eleanor McDonald is a young, disabled, paradigm person who passionately engages with disability justice, abolition and Indigenous philosophies in their day-to-day practice. They write, create and live between Nam and uh, Trawana. The following segment is the introduction to uh, Manifesto for Rest and Survival on Resistance and the Power of Collective and Indigenous Call to Disability Justice. And as I said earlier, this was presented as part of this year's 3CR Disability Day broadcast. My name is Eleanor MacDonald of the Paradarama Nation, speaking to you from the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation. I'm a disabled writer and community organiser who is committed to developing a disability justice that is located in the sovereign, indigenous, grounded process and movement. Today's show is called Manifesto for Rest and Survival on resistance and the power power of collectives, an indigenous call to disability justice. Uh, This show is going to cover what an indigenous defined or led movement of disability justice looks looks like and how that takes shape. I also want to talk a bit before we get into it, why in the context of these times, survival is stated prior to resistance. Should we not be thinking beyond pure survival? Survival is a greater form of resistance than simply making it through. Survival is not an isolated thing reliant upon individual strength and success. Survival, true survival, is the result of collective networks of care, kinship and communal responsibility. Built into survival is communal healing. With this process, survival is never as lonely as the colony often imagines it to be. It is vital, however, to note that to survive is not a reflection of individual work. It is something to survive, yes, and something to celebrate, but it is not a win to be celebrated over those who could not. It wasn't us, but it could have been. I would like to pay my respects here to the disabled people who have not survived this pandemic and to the disabled mob and all blackfellas who did not make it through. With the very processes and imaginings I'm outlining today, a manifesto, if you will, continued on from the many works, the works of many people before me and continued on into future unending. The place of disability justice and exactly what it is will become much clearer. Without an approach grounded in Indigenous ways of being and knowing, led and defined by Indigenous peoples, disability justice can never succeed in this colony. I want to start by sharing an excerpt of my writing uh, that I wrote for the Emerging Writers Festival and Disability Justice Network's event in June earlier this year. This was also excerpted, I believe, um, in part for today's programming. And I want to share it again here because I think some of what I wrote is important. 
this is sick form, black yarn, crip space, deep place. We are the in-between. Purple are the spaces of mutual aid and regeneration, a site of rest and renewal, scarce found elsewhere. Purple is the promise of medicine undone and examined, an industrial complex unpicked and ended. Purple is the rebuilding and reshaping, enacted in testament to the many bodies, minds, spirits that were lost before it could become reality. Purple is the promise of meaning, that this is not simply a dream and nothing more. This is no empty project of ideas and philosophical writings. This is the sustainable future built upon resistance, upon mutual renewal. We write and speak and work, not because it soothes our dying pillows, but because we must, to have a world beyond this, a world that goes beyond and then further than that. It will not be the work of the colonies or the hand of the white savior. It will not be the workings of integration into already rotted systems. Our world is already here in some many ways. It is partly brought into existence by our collective imaginings, far greater, more expansive than can be shared in this space. It is held in our work within communities today, within our struggle to maintain as we have begun, together, centered in indigenous ways of being, our ways, in abolition beyond academic text, in intersectional co collective liberation. The world is already here, though most cannot yet envision it touch it. The world is purple as it rests within my spirit, within our continual remakings of what can and should be, purple in the in-between of what is and what will be. Before I start looking at what disability justice means in an Indigenous defined and led form, which is, I believe, the only way it can exist and succeed, I want to take a moment to look back at the past year and outline who exactly I'm speaking to. Well, I say the past year, but I really mean the past few years with the pandemic and even before then. All around me, disabled communities burnt out and exhausted, repeated traumas inscribed upon the body. And yet despite all this, we've managed to find and develop and continue to build care, community and kinship, connection and survival despite it throughout. It is partly why I speak alone today on this program, aside from brief interludes later on from others. All around me, my disabled kin are burnt out and exhausted, tired beyond belief in both body and spirit. I myself have had no easy year, major surgery, endless complications, medical appointments, hospital conflicts and repeated foolery by the colony to navigate. And then to top all this, a pandemic in which the dehumanisation of disabled bodies has become greater and greater, an endless toll. And now, whilst others meet and go outside without concern, many of us remain forced into isolation and separation. The need is as great as it has always been for community and its care. Everyone should be paying attention to what I say today, listening and learning but it is not settlers who are the focus of my words today. It is to my community to whom I speak, to my black disabled kin, and also to all indigenous peoples across the world. Working alongside the settler is necessary, but it is not they who should be the focus here in defining an indigenous manifesto for disability justice. To direct those words whilst considering the settler is to defeat my very purpose. 
The point is to understand why this must be so and what it means to follow an Indigenous defined form of disability justice, how that may look and when. The point is to respect our voices here, to understand that the settler is not the priority. We must work alongside one another, but the process in which we do so must be led by mob. Disability justice, after all, began as a concept on Turtle Island, led by Indigenous disabled kin there. Pay attention when I say Indigenous disabled kin. I do not mean able-bodied Indigenous people. I'm referring only to disabled, sick, mob. And what do I mean by community? Let me be clear here, for it is a common settler misapprehension. This is not an extraction. Community is defined by what one gives to it, not what not by what can be extracted or known. A community in an Indigenous Black conception of disability justice is measured by the networks we build and sustain. The care we have for one another within this space is not defined by zero-sum shares of experience or knowing, nor of gatekeeping meanings and identities or futile oppression Olympics in which no one can win. This is a space in which the relational is defined by how much you can give how much you can envision, not how much can be taken. That was a short but really powerful segment from Elena MacDonald's part in broadcasting on Disability Day this year, um, speaking about the the absolute importance for um, First Nations-led disability justice. I'd highly recommend that you go back and listen to the entire... Um, segment as well as other parts of the broadcast. If you go to 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au, you'll see a link there to this year's Disability Day broadcast. Health for Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen, which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism, and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. You're back on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It's 7.42 a.m., I've got a very special guest on the phone this morning. Professor Federica Casa is an academic researcher and university educator in international relations. Currently, she works as a sessional lecturer in peace and conflict studies at the University of Queensland in Mianjin. Her research expertise in gender and race in military organisation and visual representations. And outside of academia, she has a passion for art and writes on Mianjin local art. She's on the show to chat to us about a recent article she co-wrote in The Conversation about the lack of women in the military as well as defence and security positions. This follows data collected from SheCurity Index, which entails that Australia has made large strides in gender equality in other areas like diplomacy and minister positions, but the lack of representation of women in security and defence jobs indicate we have more work to do. Thanks so much for joining us, Federica. 
Hi, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, I briefly mentioned uh, hashtag security index data just at the beginning there, but would you be able to start us off by explaining what this report is and what it told us about gender representation and participation here in Australia? Of course. So before I answer your question, I want to acknowledge that I am connecting from the land of the Jagara and Turbo people in Yanjing, Brisbane. Um, and the, the security index is uh, a recent um, index that was released for the first time in 2020, and so it's only in its second iteration. And it's an index that measures women participation and representation in government institutions that shape peace and security. Um, it was an initiative that was launched by a member of the European Parliament, um, and it's in line with the UN Women, Peace and Security Agenda. So basically, it aims to track the progress that we're making in relation to the Women, Peace and Security uh, Agenda, which is a global commitment that is expressed to the UN to increase the meaningful participation of women and girls in peace and security. Um, she, security uh, maps uh, global trends in women's participation in uh, defense and security. And uh, this year, um, it analyzed women's representation in politics, diplomacy, military, police, international missions, and thinking security. This year, it was also the first time that security um, included a discussion around LGBT plus communities and also people of color. So that's very important to know. Um, there are three main findings that security found this year. And, and are the, these are the following. First, uh, security found that countries are still failing to provide data uh, that are gender specific. So in some respects, we do not know very well the picture um, so these data are particularly missing in, in the areas of diplomacy, military, and police. Secondly, security found that there is a disconnect between representation, the representation of women in an institution and uh, positions of power. So basically what this means is that female representation doesn't necessarily translate into decision-making. Uh, and oftentimes it is the case that the visibility of women in position of power hides and masks uh, the, the absence of women uh, at lower levels. So this indicates that there is still the glass ceiling that remains in place. The yeah. third finding that security finds is that um, women women's representation varies across portfolios. So we cannot really say that if we find a good representation in parliament, then uh, there is a good representation of women across portfolios. Actually, we need to look at different portfolios to see uh, what's the state um, of the situation in relation to uh, gender representation. Um, in terms of... Oh, yeah, sorry. No, no, go on. Absolutely, go on. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, this is something that I could just talk for forever. Uh, I just wanted to say something about Australia if you're interested. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry. The, me and Shannon I, looked at... Yeah, it follows, because um, my next question, sorry, before I rudely interrupted, <laughs> um, was going to follow on um, exactly, you know, what's happening here in Australia, because um, as you did mention in the article, you know, um, 
there was some constructive steps uh, being put in place for more women in diplomatic and parliamentary positions. Um, but, you know, there are still uh, some indication of positions where women are lacking. And if you could go into a bit more greater detail about some of the areas that Australian women are not well represented and why we might be f- uh, failing to put women into positions of power in these fields. Yeah, look, I'm going to say that Australia is doing relatively well compared to many other countries. Uh, so, for example, has increased the number of, of diplomatic missions headed by women. Um, and so now we are standing at 40%. Um, the numbers of uh, women in defence have also increased. We have, uh, we have had uh, female foreign ministers. So, like, things are not, like, things are good for Australia. The problem with Australia is more a qualitative one than a quantitative one. So uh, uh, let me give you an example for it. In in the military, Australia has uh, 40% of the uh, Australian um, defence force is composed, 20% of the Australian defence force is composed by women, uh, which sounds quite small, but it's actually quite, uh, quite high. It's a quite high number compared to many other countries in the world. So... Just for comparison, uh, Shikiri defines that um, that we're going to reach gender equality in the military globally uh, in 155 years. While if you take Australia alone, the number goes down to 52 years. So, so I think that that gives an indication of the fact that Australia is doing so much better in um, in the sector of women in the military. However, a qualitative study shows that women, like if you talk to women in the military. They will highlight that there are qualitative problems uh, of their, in this service, including the fact that they um, they feel that they, they, they notice that there are not as many opportunities to advance their career, the lack mentorship, and also there are there is a lack of uh, senior positions for for them. So I want to stress that numbers are important, and I think that if you look at the numbers only, Australia is doing quite well, but the problem is qualitative in many respects. Yeah, I think that's such a great point as well because I think a lot of uh, articles and um, I guess people that would be writing about the study would kind of grab the numbers and be like, oh, look at Australia, we're doing such a great job. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to bring up a comparison, maybe this would be helpful in explaining uh, where Australia might be going wrong as well because you note that a lot of this is obviously hard to analyse as there has been a lack of data that Australia has provided to Shakira uh, report. However, it appears that many countries uh, we would consider, you know, our political allies like New Zealand are uh, have fared better in their commitment to gender representation, um, especially where we're lacking in defence and security fields. Uh, just maybe your um, opinion on this, but why do you think uh, New Zealand specifically has been able to achieve this? And I guess you know we must address the elephant in the room that is, you know, female leadership. <laughs> with Jacinda Arden, but yeah, what do you think? Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, so I would say, first of all, that uh, the numbers do not necessarily indicate that New Zealand is doing that much better compared to Australia. Yeah. So they're actually very similar if you look at the numbers. Um, however, what Australia, sorry, what New Zealand is doing better, as you mentioned, is female leadership uh, and also the question of race. So, uh, for example, um, New Zealand, as mentioned um, in its budget stage, uh, a clear commitment 
to uh, Samoa and Indigenous uh, people in New Zealand, while Australia in its budget speech did not even mention Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So the question I was... Uh, and another example, New Zealand in 2020 has uh, um, nominated its first uh, Indigenous Foreign Affairs uh, Minister, Nananya uh, Mauta, and... And that really indicates that there is a commitment not just to women, but um, to Indigenous women and, and to Indigenous people in Australia, in, in New Zealand, which is something that is still lacking in in Australia. So what I want to point out here in the context of this question is that you cannot really separate the question of gender from the question of race. Yes. And I think that Australia is trying to do that in ways that New Zealand is not, and that's why New Zealand is fighting better when it comes to gender, because they have the intersectional card that Australia doesn't yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Really good point um, on that one. And I think I want to dive straight into, you know, uh, what are some of the benefits of having uh, women, gender diverse, um, ra- uh, different races in, posi- in these types of positions? What kind of impact could we see if we really put people uh, at the forefront um, of these positions? So I think that you can look at this question from very different perspectives, including the fact that, I mean, women should just have the same opportunities as men. Like, it's just it's a no-brainer mm-hmm. to me in many respects. Uh, but this is this is a method of, one, empowering women in terms of decision-making, but also allowing for economic opportunities. Uh, it, it's really important to stress that when you're closing these opportunities to women, you're not just foreclosing political opportunities, but you're also for closing economic opportunities. So that's, that's one uh, side of the question. Um, and I think it's really important to remember that here in Australia, women are retiring with 42% less superannuation than men, which is a mind-blowing yeah. number. Um, so that's, that's one of the reasons why women should be empowered, so that we can actually also address the, the gender pay gap. But in terms of uh, the benefits, so the political benefits, it is important to note that the women can bring a different type of leadership style and different priorities. Um, and and so the inclusion of women and people of color would be a way to address certain problems that when you have only one class of people in power, you just don't even see, right? Uh, so that's, this is not even about they don't want to see. It, it's just that the positionality of a person determines the things that they can see. That's, that's just as simple as that. Yes. So yeah. the inclusion of women and people of color in in, in, in positions of um, uh, decision-making uh, in defense and leadership would be a way of, one, changing the leadership style that uh, tends to be quite aggressive. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that women cannot be aggressive, but... It's just to say that women can bring a different type of leadership leadership style uh, and also different priorities. So we know that uh, the women in politics tend to prioritize um, uh, welfare in, uh, in ways that uh, men in power don't necessarily do. So that, that's something that we need to, to keep in mind. We also know from studies that Women are in the negotiating table of peace negotiations. Peace tends to last longer. And the reason why is that 
when women are at the negotiating table, what happens is that they can bring to the table problems that, uh, that in the long term will become grievances and they can cause conflict again, right? Mm-hmm. So if they are addressed at the negotiating table, then these grievances are less likely to reemerge and therefore cause conflict in the in the long term. So that's that's really important to, to acknowledge. But I would say that it's less about counting the women in security and more making women count in security. Yeah. And so I would really like to take this opportunity to say that it's not about increasing the numbers of women in defense, but rather it's to make a, a commitment to a feminist foreign policy, which some countries have already. Um, and, and this is basically a foreign policy that aims to take into account uh, how policy and, and, and international relations impact women and girls before the policy is actually implemented. Yeah. Um, so that would be really the thing that, that matters. Definitely. And um, just because we're running out of time, I just have one more question. Um, Just in terms of Australia, obviously, there's been um, a lot of talk about gender representation and everything, uh, specifically in like the last couple of years. Do you think Australia is on track for achieving greater representation and participation and, um, I guess, more qualitative uh, representation in um, these positions and or do you think we're kind of dwindling behind a little bit? I think that if you are thinking of counting women in defence and security, I think that Australia is on track, and I think that the commitments that Australia has made, uh, it, it's clear that um, that they are increasing the numbers in, in of women in defence and security. However, I think that um, that there could be more. Like I think that Australia sometimes uses the, the card of gender equality to mask the problem of yeah. race and colonization. So I think that Australia should really need to like should really focus on uh, on addressing addressing the the problem of colonization, the problem of uh, of non-white people in this country because. Um, like although we are making progress in that respect, I think that that would be the area that we should focus more on um, to increase, like to really achieve uh, progress in, in relation to, to gender equality. That by which I mean gender as an intersecting category would face. I would also say that um, that it's becoming less a matter of counting the women in defence and, uh, and security, and more about making like some serious important commitments. So for example, recently Australia has launched this Second National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security, which is basically a government document that details how Australia would go about um, uh, promoting the, the UN uh, Women, Peace and Security agenda, How, which is awesome, right? So we are at yeah. the Second Action Plan now. However, Australia didn't commit a budget. So it means that there is like, how are we going to do this is still up in the air. So I think that with the words and with the numbers, Australia is doing great. But when it comes to actions, I think that there are still that there are areas where we can do better. Yeah, definitely. Some really important points. And I would recommend our listeners, if uh, you potentially missed the start of that interview, to uh, read uh Frederica Cass's uh, article on the conversation called Women Play a Critical Role in Diplomacy and Security, So Why Aren't More in Positions of Power? And we'll provide a link to our uh, to the article on our website as well. But thank you so much, Frederica, for joining us this morning. 
Thank you. And thank you for this opportunity. It was nice. Thank no, you. absolutely. Such great intakes and I think such important points. Um, that was Professor Federica Casa, an academic researcher and university educator in international relations, speaking about a recent report published uh, outlining the representation and um, participation of women uh, in uh, positions in politics, uh, defence and security, uh, international relations, diplomacy, and kind of measuring where Australia might be lacking. And I think uh, Federica made some really important points about it's not just about those numbers. It's not just about pushing uh, women and gender diverse people um, into those fields just to get those numbers up, but it's about the qualitative aspect and, you know, putting them in leadership, putting them in positions where they can actually make a difference. Um, all right, stay uh, tuned with us because we've got another exciting interview coming up next with Professor Maria O'Sullivan, but we're going to take a little quick break with some announcements and we'll be right back after this. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. You're on Tuesday Breakfast, 3CR Community Radio. Next up, following that incredible interview from Federica, uh, we've got... We've got... um, Uh, On the Australian theme of, I guess, gender representation, um, we've got Maria O'Sullivan. uh, And Maria is an associate professor um, in the Faculty of Law and Deputy Director of the Caston Centre for Human Rights in Law at Monash University. Her teaching and research interests are public law, refugee law and human rights law. And she's on the show to also discuss the contents of an article she co-wrote for the conversation specifically about the new Jenkins report that came out a couple days ago and about workplace sexual harassment and the necessity of banning non-disclosure agreements. I just want to give a quick trigger warning for anyone that, uh, you know, speaking of sexual harassment, uh, sexual abuse or anything of that nature, uh, please tune out for the next 15 minutes and tune back in uh, when you feel comfortable to do so. But thank you so much for joining us, Marie. 
Good morning, Genevieve. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to start off. There has been much discussion following the Brittany Higgins allegation on uh, the set, the standard report, which is conducted by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins on sexual harassment and bullying in the Parliament workplace. Um, one particular component it alludes to is the culture of secrecy and silence, which uh, you speak about in your article. Uh, you know that prevents survivors of workplace sexual harassment to speak out. Um, and I guess central to this is the non-disclosure agreements. Uh, could you start us off by explaining what is a non-disclosure agreement and how does it impact sexual harassment in the workplace? Sure. So these are quite old agreements. Yeah, they were used in the 40s and 50s, you know, in entertainment and also um, predominantly in patent and intellectual property cases. So that's where you have a song in the entertainment industry or with patents, you have some pharmaceutical you know, vaccine you know, uh, that you want to protect. So say you want to commercialise some sort of item, you, uh, you want to sell it to someone, you oblige the other person to not disclose the patent that you're working on to protect it. So I can understand the, the use in that scenario um, to enable those transactions to go forward. But what they've been doing in the past, say, 20 years is using those confidentiality agreements uh, for workplace bullying and harassment. And what typically happens is that um, a woman, for example, men can also obviously argue uh, harassment and bullying, but uh, the most common scenario is a woman complains of sexual harassment or bullying if it's particularly about someone quite high profile, like a minister, then the tendency would be, okay, we'll pay her off. So they offer that woman a settlement and as part of that, she has to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which means she can't talk about the harms that she suffered at the hands of the perpetrator. And it was most infamously used in the Harvey Weinstein mm. um, a, a set of agreements. And that's why California has banned those. Yeah, actually, that would kind of leads into my next question as well. Of um, If you feel comfortable, uh, could you maybe give us an example of when a non-disclosure agreement was used um, to silence someone uh, that was a survivor of sexual harassment in the workplace or maybe what might happen to someone when a non-disclosure agreement is used against them? Yes, yeah, so typically, I mean, it's very difficult for women to complain about sexual harassment. It's not done lightly. And in the Harvey Weinstein cases, uh, women did eventually, you know, sufficiently get the courage to to complain officially um, to someone in the organisation. And then the response is to get the lawyers in and they'd say, well, you know, it's very difficult. Harvey Weinstein is a very uh, important character, you know, particularly if they've got movies to make and there's millions and millions of dollars at stake. So they would put pressure on her and say, it's very difficult for you to show that this happened. You know, what did you do? Of course, putting the blame on the victim and then mm. the pressure is to then give uh, for her to accept a, a monetary settlement. And as part of that, they put her under duress to sign this non-disclosure provision. Yeah. And I guess we kind of saw it also really potently with the Brittany Higgins allegations and what kind of prompted the um, Kate Jenkins to um, 
set off uh, writing this report um, and I believe the report and also the one that came out recently mentioned that, you know, this idea of secrecy and uh, we can't speak about it is spurring this toxicity in the workplace for sexual harassment. Um, Would you be able to explain what exactly did the Jenkins report say about non-disclosure agreements? Sure. As you say, um, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner also released a report earlier uh, so in 2020 that mentioned this issue as well. With the Jenkins report, she was looking obviously only at Parliament House and the main recommendations there were to have leadership about respect for women, to have an independent commission. This is one of the problems with workplace harassment and bullying. Often you're expected to go to your your own human resources department and if that's a small organisation, you may, you know, reasonably think that the perpetrator is going to find out and there'll be recriminations. So one of the main things about the Jenkins report is that there'll be an independent person you can go to um, and, yeah, and so leadership on respect for women and, as you quite rightly say, um, a, a situation of transparency. So both in the Jenkins report this year and the Respect at Work report from 2020, the recommendation has been to uh, prohibit NDAs in workplace bullying and harassment. So we allow them for things like patents and intellectual property, but we don't allow them for workplace bullying. Yeah, okay. And it obviously seems that this is quite a catalyst, you know, in the cycle of workplace sexual harassment, um, you know, that appears to protect the perpetrators and not the survivors. Um, What can we do to stop non-disclosure agreements from uh, uh, perpetuating workplace sexual harassment? I think what we can do is be open in our own workplace. And I, I know at my own university, I try and stand up for women. And, and that's partly why I wrote that piece. Yeah. And also, uh, you can, you know, on a, a more general um, sort of arena, you know, in, in Australia, I think we can send a letter to our Member of Parliament and say that we want the government to fully endorse and implement every recommendation in the Jenkins report. And then also, to be honest, I think calling out family and friends if we feel that they're not being respectful of women, and I've done that myself with my own family and my own friends. Um, And I've actually, you know, broken up with a male friend who I believed was sexist. So I think there's a lot of things we can do um, both in our workplaces, in our friendships, in our families, and I guess more globally, if you like, uh, by interacting with politicians to tell them that we want women to be respected. And as part of that, um, that we don't want women to be subject to duress to sign these non-disclosure agreements. Yeah, definitely. And also, like, I didn't know what a non-disclosure agreement was until very recently, and a lot of people don't, um, and so having discussions about it as well. Um, And I wanted to just touch on, uh, you mentioned this in the article, but obviously this is a very tricky legal issue as non-disclosure agreements, you know, serve a purpose that is also unrelated to harassment and bullying, you know, as you mentioned earlier. So how might we reform the laws to fit in with these major concerns outlined in the Jenkins report and, you know, how do we uh, as a nation protect survivors of sexual harassment, especially in the workplace? Yes, well, of course, um, 
I think having um, things like freedom of information, so having transparency about these issues, yeah. having an independent commission. Um, but with NDAs, so these non-disclosure agreements more specifically, I think in legislation we can actually ban them. Yeah. Um, and so they're only limited to the situations where you have some sort of trade secret. And also I think companies need to pledge not to use them publicly. And I've also asked my faculty and the university, or well, I will be asking my university to publicly pledge not to use non-disclosure agreements. I had double negative there, but, you know, to, to prohibit the use of non-disclosure yeah. agreements. Yeah, definitely. And I think just before we round up uh, this discussion, I wanted to ask, do you think Australia is waking up to the reality of sexual harassment and bullying since these reports have been published and I guess since there has been a lot of discussion in the last couple of years or do you think we still have a long way to go? I think there is some recognition. I think we still have a long way to go because I was quite concerned about the situation in Parliament House in the days after the Jenkins report when Senator Jackie Lambie uh, took the floor and there was um, apparently growling and dog noises made Mm, in her direction by um, a senator. So that sort of culture, that, you know, boys' culture, if you like, um, that that is unacceptable in a workplace. And I think, obviously, in all areas of life, we want respect for women, but I think it must be very, very uh, stressful to go to work in the morning thinking, am I going to be harassed or bullied? Because, um, you know, that's an important for both financially and as a contribution to society. We all want to go to a safe workplace and do our job properly. Yeah, of course. Um, Well, that's all we have time for today, Maria. But thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about non-disclosure agreements and the Jenkins report at large. Thank you so much. Thank you, Genevieve. Good morning. That was Professor Maria O'Sullivan um, having some really interesting um, intakes on the non-disclosure agreements, which seem to be perpetuating this culture of silence and secrecy, uh, especially for sexual harassment in the workplace. And I think, you know, she made some really good points about um, having those discussions with people in your immediate life and also talking about, you know, what is a non-disclosure agreement? If you ever are approached with one in the workplace, for example, or in any circumstance, you kind of know what it is. So I think that was a really important point. But we might head straight into an announcement and we'll be right back after this. You're on Tuesday Breakfast. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. If 
you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. It is quarter past eight. We're now going to go to a song. Um, So this one is by Eilish Gilligan, who is a producer, singer and songwriter from Nam. And this next track is from her latest EP, First One to Leave the Party, which I find super relatable. This song, Up All Night, is a catchy pop track that will sure to get you dancing this Tuesday morning. Been here before, making up my mind. Halfway out the door, washing on the line. Group chat is a strong light. There's always things to do. Big call, but I just might forget I'm not with you. I'm better than before, like 85%. You're not my ever thought. Maybe now and then, say yes to the invite. Place you with a friend Cause I'm up for a big night That's never gonna end
That was the track Up All Night by Eilish Gilligan. We're going to go into another song now. And, you know, we had a bit of a messy morning this morning. Things didn't go our way, but that's okay. And I have absolutely been binge listening to Lily Allen over the weekend. I think she really sums up a nice sarcastic humor to when things go wrong. (laughs) Um, And I think this song off her first album um, is just, yeah, I really relate to it. Um, You probably know it if you were a fan uh, back in the day, but it's called Everything's Just Wonderful.
Just playing underneath there is the brilliant Lily Allen with her song Everything's Just Wonderful. Uh, yeah, I think it... <laughs> as much as uh, this year, maybe it sums up the year, this year's been stressful and everything, you do have to just say to yourself, everything's just wonderful, everything's fine. Um, but we're just going to go into um, a special little segment, uh, Fung. Yes. <laughs> so f- um, for listeners who tuned in last week, you would have heard uh, the first episode of a short series of interviews that I did with some students from Collingwood College. So we're going to jump into the second episode now. And this is with Heidi, Nina, Sol and Daniel. I'm Heidi. Um, I'm 10 and I'm from grade 4. Hi, my name is Nina um, and my age is 10 and I'm grade 4. Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm 10 turning 11 this year and I live in Melbourne in the city. Hello, I'm Sol. I'm 9 and I'm in grade 3. In October, while we were still in lockdown, I spoke with some students in grades 3 and 4 from Collingwood College, which is just around the corner from the 3CR studios. Today we'll hear from four young people as they share what's been on their minds this year. First up are their reflections from life in lockdown. I think lockdown's been really, really hard. Been on and off, been coming in and out of lockdown. It's just been confusing, gnawing everyone down. And my mum's E12 teacher, and um, that means that, yeah, basically she's teaching year 12 so she's in school and dad's special needs so he's always been teaching he's never been homeschooling he's always had to go in so now I'm being jungled around with parents and occasionally going to school so it's been hard I guess I still get a good education and meetings help and yeah Um, lockdown's been pretty difficult for me because um, my mum and dad have been having to go back and forth to work because they're screen printers and um, so they have to go there. And recently there's been a case at work and so they all have to get tested. But I think the upper side to it is that um, sometimes I get to stay at home, but sometimes I have to go to work. And when I'm at home, I get to stay with my cat, and I don't usually get to do that when um, I'm at school. I really miss playing with my friends and learning in person. And also, I think there is a big, up, a big upside is because um, connecting with the teachers, because... 
and the kids because we all feel the same and um, we all know what it feels like to be in lockdown and also, yeah, playing with my cats too. It's mostly just been mushed together. I have enjoyed staying at home because I do get to play with my two cats, Hashi and Misa. Finally, the students shared with me their hopes for life after lockdown. Um, I think what I'll look forward to when we go back to school is really seeing my friends a lot more and um, being able to just go to school because it's pretty hard to do that at the moment. I do agree with Heidi that I do miss my friends and um, but I don't have a pet so I won't get that loss if I go back to school. I'm looking forward to seeing my friends and I'm looking forward to being in a place that I feel like I can properly learn. Also be really looking forward to seeing my friends and family and um, maybe going to like more local areas like going to the pools, the cinema and going to visit my friend at the beach house and a bunch of other things. So I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody because I'm definitely not someone who likes to be alone. Definitely not. that was um, Heidi, Nina, Sol and Daniel who spoke with me. They are in grades three and four from Collingwood College. All right, we're coming to the end of the show. We'll do a quick wrap up uh, about what was on the show. Fung, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so at the beginning we chatted with Emma, who's a primary school uh, teacher and uh, an activist. And yeah, we spoke about young people and how they access information about complex issues. Then we heard from Elena McDonald, who is a young disabled paradigm person, um, and and their speech was part of this year's uh, 3CR's Disability Day broadcast. And I had a quick chat to a couple of academics, Professor Federica Casa and Professor Maria O'Sullivan, uh, which was really interesting. I'd highly recommend going back and listening to those if you missed them. And then we finished with uh, some interviews that I did with some students from Collingwood College. Easy. Well, Accent of Women is coming up next, so keep it locked to 3CR and enjoy your Tuesday morning. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.